Amen. We're going to Second Peter chapter 1 this morning. Second Peter chapter 1, starting to read at verse 16. It says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. Amen. Apostle Peter, in this, his second epistle, as the Lord is inspiring him to write, is remembering a very special occasion in his life when he walked with the Lord. And together with James and John, Peter went up into a mountain with the Lord, which is now referred to as the Mount of Transfiguration, because during that trip to the top of the mountain, Jesus was transfigured before them. His his appearance changed so much and the scripture says that his face shone with a brightness that the writers of scripture compared to the sun itself. It was an incredible experience. And while this was happening before their eyes, the, where the Lord lets us know that Moses and Elijah appeared and entered into a conversation with the Lord. Now, we, we, we read over scripture too quickly sometimes. If you imagine being Peter, James or John just you know, up on the mountaintop with Jesus and all of a sudden he starts to glow like a thousand watt fluorescent bulb and then these two people that have been long gone appear and begin to talk with him. It would have been quite incredible. And so cutting him a little bit of slack at the time, Peter was quite overcome with the excitement of the occasion and suggested that they should build three tabernacles or three memorials right then and there, one for Jesus one for Moses and one for Elijah. And almost as soon as the words have left his mouth, immediately a cloud covers them and a voice from heaven declares, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Now it's only my imagination, but I imagine that now some 30 plus years later, as Peter is writing this epistle, having so much more understanding of who Jesus was and is, he probably shakes his head almost embarrassed at his impulsive response to that situation and certainly has come to understand and appreciate so much more that only Jesus is worthy of special honor and worship and that he was the only one in whom the Father was well pleased. And for a little while this morning, I want to probably teach as much as preach about pleasing God, pleasing God, amen. The incarnation or the declaration of God in flesh, we understand was the only solution to a problem that separated a holy God from his sinful image creature. There was no man that could be found, no person that could be found that would be an acceptable sacrifice to be offered in mankind's place. It was not There was nobody that was sinless and so the Bible tells us that by the Holy Spirit God moved on the womb of a young lady named Mary 
and she became pregnant with a child that was like no other. This child, a son who was to be called Jesus, would be the savior of the world. And in his humanity, Jesus would experience the complete human life. He would grow. He would learn. He would have emotions. He would pray. He would struggle with some things. He would have weariness. He would have loneliness. And I believe he even experienced heartache. And yet all of that without sin in his humanity. But in his divinity, he was the one that Colossians would later declare that in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And to fully comprehend how humanity and divinity were fused together is definitely beyond the limits of my very small and limited mind. Because I can look at it from different sides and I can certainly, as God opens the understanding of his word, have revelation. But what God does so much is beyond us. And so we believe it by faith because the word of God declares it, that God was manifest in the flesh. To try and identify separate persons in a Godhead to say that the Father and the Son were in fact separate beings or individual persons is to create a concept that is outside of the Bible and is more in line with the polytheistic nations that Israel was surrounded with and was forbidden to join themselves with. God went out of his way to emphasize, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And so this Savior, our Savior, my Savior, would live for one purpose, to fulfill the will of God and to make salvation possible for you and I. And such was his submission to the will of God that even when he was understandably horrified about the impending crucifixion, his prayer would be not my will but thine be done. But Jesus was not the only man or the only person that was purposed with pleasing God. Revelation 4 and 11 says, Thou Art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. That includes you and I this morning. Word of God speaks to us in places of the angels, the angelic host, worshiping him in his throne room, crying, Holy, holy, holy. The psalmist, in that poetic language of those books, speaks about the trees of the fields clapping their hands. Now, we know the trees don't actually have hands, but it's a statement of creation honoring its creator. He wrote of how the floods would clap their hands and the hills would be joyful. I don't know what a joyful mountain looks like, but it's, it's the psalmist using that language to communicate that all of creation acknowledges his majesty. That's why that is recorded for us to read. But into our hands, and we've covered some of this in recent weeks, but into our hands alone is placed the choice to either fulfill our created purpose or to abandon it in pursuit of sinful pleasure and to break the heart of God. I'm ministering this morning about pleasing God. Hebrews chapter 11. Verses 5 and 6 says, By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found. As the international hide-and-seek champion, still haven't found him yet. Because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this 
testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently or intentionally with purpose and determination seek him. When you read of Enoch in the early chapters of Genesis, this man without a single verse of scripture to read or to follow or to obey is described as pleasing God to such a point that he was translated and would not see death. We use that word to describe something being translated from one language to another, but Enoch was translated from one realm to another. He went from the present to the eternal. He had none of the things that we have. Did not have scripture, didn't have so many of the things that we look to and that the Lord has provided for us. And yet his testimony was that he pleased God so much that God took him. Wow. It wasn't Seth. You know, when Cain and Abel messed everything up, well, Abel didn't mess it up. Cain dealt with Abel and then Cain fled and then the Bible says that they had another son who was named Seth and men begin to call on the name of the Lord so he was a righteous man. He wasn't translated. It wasn't Noah who found grace in the sight of God. But Enoch, we know so little about him and yet we know that his testimony was that he pleased God and God took him. I want us to consider some things, perhaps not everything, but some things the scriptures teach us about pleasing God. The first clue is in the the other verse we read from Hebrews 11, chapter 6. That is, without faith, it is impossible to please God. The Bible tells us there is a measure of faith that is given to us. There is the ability to believe in God resident within every single person that's ever been born. And when we take that faith and we invest it in the Word of God, there is There is a process. There is something that begins to come alive. When we begin, Scripture says that faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the Word of God. It's almost a circular process where as we hear the Word of God, faith begins to come alive. And then that faith is reinvested in the Word of God. And it's this ongoing thing where as we allow our faith to mix with His Word, it comes alive in us and we believe in Him. And we believe in His Word. If we want to please God, we must believe in Him. And we must believe in His Word because that is the source of faith, at least in an active sense. But Scripture tells us that the reverse is also true. Hebrews 10 and 38, the chapter before, Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. The just or the righteous live by faith by trusting in God. Those who draw back, who have fear instead of faith, who turn to the left or the right, do not please God. It is not that God hates them or that God just kicks them to the curb, but if we're going to have a relationship with Him, it demands faith. We cannot have fear instead of faith. We must believe what the Word of God says and do what the Word of God says to please God. Amen. Coming back to the power of choice, the Apostle Paul wrote to the Galatians and expressed how shocked he was that they had so quickly gone astray, that they had so easily been willing to believe another gospel 
something that was not in agreement with what he had taught them. Now, people ask me sometimes, why are there so many churches? It was happening in the first century. (laughs) People were adding their own flavors and spices to the gospel and modifying and tweaking and and chopping bits out. And it was happening in the beginning. Why wouldn't it continue to happen now? But Paul said he was amazed at how quickly they had gone off track. And then he repeats himself for emphasis saying it doesn't matter how spiritual somebody may appear how eloquent they may be, even if they are an angel from heaven, if they mess with the message, if they corrupt the gospel of Jesus Christ, they are to be accursed. Strong language. Strong. I'm not so sure how the first century church would handle the delicate and easily offended cancel culture in which we live today. I think Paul would have been canceled real quick. They would have, he would have been removed from Twitter and Facebook and every other platform because he was full of hate speech. Because he said, if you're not preaching what I gave you from Jesus, you're to be accursed. That's very triggering language. You know, you've got to be careful. But Paul, Paul wasn't losing any sleep over people's opinions or feelings. In Galatians 1 and 10, he said, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. He said, I cannot be a servant of Jesus Christ if I'm focused on pleasing men. Amen. And I, I teach this regularly, but we, we must not, we should never go out of our way to be offensive or abrasive. That is ungodly. But by the same token, if we are going to please God, then the opinions and feelings of people must never interfere with the truth of the Word of God. You've heard me often say that you never despise somebody's journey to truth. You never, ever despise where somebody begins. Many of us began our faith journey with incomplete doctrines and principles, even false doctrines. And and the Lord took us in His grace and His mercy and added to our understanding. That's why you never despise where somebody starts. But just as we should never despise somebody's journey, we should also never indulge false doctrine. Two sides of the same coin. You always respect somebody's faith, but you never just endorse false doctrine. Do we want to please God? Love the truth. Guard the truth. Don't be swayed by opinions and feelings. Let God be true, the scripture says, and every man a liar. So we always treat people with love and compassion, but that does not mean sacrificing the truth of God's word. Amen. I was reading just in the last couple of days in Luke chapter 23, the beginning of the chapter, Jesus is being shuffled back and forth between Pontius Pilate and Herod as they're trying to work out what to do with this unusual man. He's on trial. They've brought charges against him, but Pilate's not sure what to do. Herod's not sure what to do. And it's like this strange judicial game of pass the parcel. It's going backwards and forwards. And in the first verse of chapter 23, it says that the whole multitude arose and led him to Pilate. This angry mob doesn't tell us how big it was, but a multitude's more than a few. They're filled with hatred, violence, and arrogance. All in agreement that he was guilty. All in agreement that he was not who he claimed to be. And yet, in the face of that mob, it did not change his identity 
even by the smallest imaginable margin. It did not even move the needle that there was a mob that challenged who he was. He was the truth then, and he always will be the truth. And we have to understand that truth is simply truth. It does not change subject to the opinions and ideas of people. Jesus said, I am the truth. Amen. It was a statement. It wasn't just something he brought. It was something that he is. And I don't know about you this morning, but I want to please him. I want to please him more than I want to please people, more than I want to be palatable to society. I, I don't enjoy standing out any more than anybody else does, but pleasing him must be our priority. Amen. To please God is to live a certain way. It's to make decisions that are guided by that purpose. It is to not get caught up in the unnecessary. And when you read the Paul's letters to Timothy, Timothy was a, a fine young preacher, a fine young man, but he seemed to be susceptible to discouragement, to distraction. What do you know? He was human. And Paul had the responsibility of challenging him, of telling him to stir up the gift that was within him. And then in 2 Timothy 2 and 4, Paul wrote to him and said, No man that wars or no man that goes to war entangles himself with the affairs of this life. Why? That he may please him who has chosen him to be a soldier. I am going to please the one who has chosen me. I cannot become too entangled with the affairs of this life. Yes, we have to take care of the business of life. We have to work. We've got all those things. But we cannot become so entwined and woven into this life that we lose sight of our purpose. If we are soldiers, as Paul used in this illustration, then we serve at his pleasure. We go where he says we go. We do what he says we do. You know, soldiers don't get an opinion. I don't know if you realize that. Soldiers don't get the opportunity to make suggestions about better alternatives. You know, when you see the, the classic image of a drill sergeant or a sergeant major, an officer, giving barking orders, you don't see the private raise his hand and say, I have an alternative suggestion I'd like to present. It doesn't happen. You do that, you're going to get some fun chores to take care of. Are you going to run a long way or do something to teach you to keep your mouth shut? And I'm glad that when I question God, he doesn't make me run 10 miles with a full pack because I'd be in hospital if I had to do that. But we have to understand that when we are chosen by him to be a soldier, that our existence is to please him. And we're not given options. It, it is for us to please the one that has chosen us to be his Soldiers, soldiers, particularly in time of war, leave things behind. They give themselves to a cause that at least theoretically, I don't want to get into politics today, but at least theoretically in principle is greater than themselves. I do believe that the cause of Jesus Christ is greater than us as individuals and that our purpose is to please him. When Paul was teaching the Corinthians about the gifts of the Spirit between 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. In chapter 12, he almost obsessively repeats that the gifts are from the same Spirit and that we are all part of the same body. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul uses the word body 18 times. That's emphasis. That's deliberate. It wasn't that he was thinking, oh, I need to use a different word, but... He didn't have a thesaurus with him. You know, he, 
he was deliberately driving a point. He was hammering home the idea that we all belong to one body, that we're all baptized in one name, they're all filled with one spirit. Why was he doing that? Because he knew that people would struggle with at least, if not more, at least two particular things. Either thinking that they were better or a more important part of the body than others, or the other extreme, that they would be unhappy with the part they were and feel less or without value. That's why Paul was also inspired to write in 1 Corinthians 12 and 18, but now has God set the members, every one of them in the body, how? As it has pleased him. The question is, do we want to please God? Then some of us, possibly me included, need to stop wishing we were a nose when he made us an ear. Stop feeling without value because we see others as more important. Because Jesus placed every one of us in his body. We heard through the gifts today that we are precious and valuable in his sight and he has positioned us as it pleased him. And I'm kind of glad he does that because if we organized it, Lord knows what it would look like. Amen. In fact, Paul goes as far as to suggest that the way we measure, the way we value parts and components of the body is actually wrong it's a actually a turned upside down value system because we worry more about the visible and that which is an attractive appearance he uses the idea of a natural body to paint this picture but we have to understand you can live without nice hair some men are very grateful for that today but try and live without a lung or your kidneys or your liver I don't ever want to see my liver or my lungs or my kidneys. I'm quite happy for them to be covered. But we spend a lot of time worrying about how we look on the outside and Paul is saying that's natural thinking. God is placing more value on the things that keep the blood pumping, that keep the body alive. The question is, do we want to please God? Well, if we do, then we need to be the very best version of whatever part that he has made us to be. If he's made you to be, the example is always the little toe, then be the best little toe that you can be. If he's made you to be, I was going to say the gallbladder, don't produce too much gall, that's not healthy. But whatever, whatever part it is that he has positioned us in, rather than spend our lives being disappointed and wishing we were something else, if I want to please him, I want to be the best version of that part of the body of Christ that I can be regardless of how I may or may not perceive that part. Amen. This whole idea flows into the idea of doing His will. Philippians 2 and 13, Paul said, For it is God that works in you. You don't do it yourself, but it is God that works in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. So if I will, if we will allow Him to, God will give us both the desire and the ability to do that which brings Him pleasure it comes from him that means that if our desire is to please God and I'm hoping that's what it is today if that is our desire and we are yielded to him that's an if there if we are yielded to him and his will then we can no longer say I don't want to or I cannot because he provides the will and the to do so when we yielded that removes the I don't want to and I cannot 
Because he said, you can't. Whatever part he's made you to be, he has made you to be able to fill that role. Whatever it is. Amen. Because he provides both the desire and the to-do if we yield to him. We'll grow into that. You don't necessarily, you know, your body parts aren't the same size they are now as when you were born. You grow into things. And if the Lord has positioned you, that may take a little while before it becomes effective and functional. But if you yield it to him, he will develop us into that place. He can do it. I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, God can use you if you'll let him. Come on, once more like you actually believe it. That was about as exciting as paying tax. First Thessalonians 4 and 1 says, Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as you have received of us how you ought to walk and to please God, so you would abound more and more. So there is a process. We receive the word of God. We grow more and more because we're walking to please him. I hope that's our desire today, that we want to please Jesus. Amen. I think this might be my last scripture. It may not be. Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 8. But they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. But they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And there's a lot more absolutes in the scripture than we recognize sometimes. Because the carnal mind is enmity or strong opposition and hatred against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. And then he says, so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Paul, again, is using contrast to demonstrate his point communicate what he's teaching and he highlights two opposites flesh and spirit one leads to death one cannot be subject to the law of god the other leads to life and peace and not only being subject to the law of god but to pleasing him so when we teach and preach about the flesh we're often speaking about sinful humanity the sinful human nature that resides within us and we readily, we, sorry, we readily admit, or at least we should readily admit, that our default setting is towards sin. That mankind, left to his own ways without correction, is naturally inclined to the pleasures of sinful flesh. And if you disconnect yourself from fellowship, from prayer, from consecration, you're not on a pathway that leads to either righteousness or holiness. And if we are serving ourselves then pleasing God is not even an option that we're considering. Uh, And as much as it's a little confronting, I hope we understand that we are not naturally good people. Just because you're not in prison doesn't mean you're a good person, at least depending on who's measuring. Jesus said there's none good but God. Now, we like to think we're good people. You know, deep down, if you're honest, you think you're a good person. Let's be honest this morning. We all like to think we're good people, but the truth is we're flawed. We're sinful humanity. Now, we're not all serial killers, bank robbers, whatever, but we're still sinful in our default setting. Amen. And I believe that that's one level of understanding that we can take from this passage. But the letter is not written to sinners. 
The letter is written to the saved. And the context of this passage, which flows through much of the letter to the church at Rome, is a comparison between Old Testament law and New Testament church. And Paul wrote that the law could not make us righteous. Why? Because it was weak through the flesh. In other words, man's abilities, his strengths, his talents were not able of themselves to produce the results that God was looking for. And so in the perfect timing of God, when he introduced the New Testament covenant, which the Old Testament was preparing for, that's a whole other lesson, we get a better view of grace, but we also get a better view of the power of God within us by the Holy Ghost. And so while it is absolutely true to say that sinful flesh will never please God, it is also true to say that our talents, our strengths and our abilities of themselves cannot please God either. It didn't work under the law. doesn't work in the New Testament. When, but when we walk in the Spirit, when we are under the controlling influence of the Holy Ghost, He then provides the will and the to-do that can bring Him pleasure. He will use your talents, your strengths and abilities, and I'm glad He does, but not by themselves and not by having confidence in our own selves. So this is all biblical talk. What does it mean practically? It means that practically there are some things you can do by your own ability or from your own experience. Now we say, the Bible says, without Him we can do nothing. And that's true, but it doesn't mean that, you know, you can't get up in the morning. You know, you have to lie and say, Lord, help me get out of bed. That's not the principle that's being communicated here. There are things that we can do of ourselves in our own strength. I'll give you an example to be transparent. I've been preaching, teaching long enough that I can, I'm not saying this, please don't take this the wrong way, I can teach a lesson about who Jesus is, about the oneness of God, just from memory and experience. Because I've done it quite a few times. I can stop praying and fasting. I can stop reading his word. I can stop checking my heart and my motives for an extended period of time. And that lesson, I'm reasonably confident to say, would still be well put together, accurate, and biblically solid. But I won't please God. Understand the difference. It's not like, you know, I'm going to forget the oneness of God. Uh, I was raised in a pastor that served it three times a week. You know, I don't think I could forget that if I wanted to. But if, if I'm doing that based out of natural memory, natural experience, natural recall, and no connection with the Spirit of God, I may be saying things that are accurate, but I'm not pleasing God. Why not? Because my natural man is in control. And I'm not subject or submitted to Jesus. I have known people who have walked away from God for years who can still explain doctrine as well as any Bible college professor. Out of knowledge. Out of history. But again, it doesn't please God. So Romans chapter 8 and verse 8 says that if we are in the flesh, we cannot please God not just talking about being in sin. It's also talking about trying to do things that are spiritual in natural ability and strength without God. Amen. One modern paraphrase describes being in the flesh in this verse as ignoring God, doing things without including God in the picture. 
Let, let's bring it back to practical again. I'm not picking on our music team. But when our worship team comes up onto a platform, I'm glad there's no shortage of ability or talent. I like better music more than bad music like everybody else does. I'm glad we've got people who can play and can sing. And there is evidence in those people of practice and skill and learning, some of them for many years. But if that's all it is, if it's just talent and ability to play or sing, if it hasn't been laid on an altar, if it hasn't been offered as a sacrifice to the Lord before they climb these steps, it may sound good, but it doesn't please God. Because we're in the flesh, not in the spirit. I hope you understand what I'm saying today. This applies to every aspect of our lives and our service to God, whether we're teaching Bible studies, ministering in children's church, whatever you do that's visible, that's unseen, sharing our testament, whatever it is that we're trying to do. If we want to please God, we must be submitted to Him. We must be saturated in His Spirit. And what we do must be offered as a sacrifice of worship unto Him. Because if it's all about me and coming from me, it can look good, it can sound good, but it's missing something because I'm not pleasing God. But when I bring it to him and I say, God, thank you for giving me whatever abilities I have. Thank you for the calling you may have placed on my life. When I stand to preach, to play, to teach, to witness, to pick somebody up, whatever it may be, God, let it be worship unto you. I can enter into a relationship that pleases him and that releases anointing. Now, I'll tell you this. There are times God will anoint you when you're carnal because he cares about the people you're ministering to. But don't live in that zone. That's a very dangerous place to live. But when I'm in a relationship, it's like, Lord, I want to not be in my flesh. That's what makes the difference. That's when anointing comes. That's when people who may not have as much talent as somebody else make a bigger difference because they're pleasing God. They're not just pleasing themselves. Amen. I've got to be submitted to him. There are, I'm going to be honest with you, and I hope you don't run me out of town, but there are times when we've had powerful moves of God when I've ministered, and I've had to go home and repent and say, God, I did not prepare either that message or myself in some sort of parallel with what happened. That was your grace and your mercy. And I've got to remember, if I want to please him, I have to approach this the right way. It doesn't matter if I can quote scripture and teach a Bible lesson off the top of my head. If it's not coming from a desire to worship God and be anointed by God, I am not pleasing Him. How do I know that? The Apostle Paul has forgotten more scripture than you and I have ever memorized. Full of zeal, full of passion, full of God. One that thought he was doing the things that pleased God and God had to arrest him and turn him around because he was passionate but he was not in a relationship where he was pleasing God the scribes and the Pharisees they knew the word of God getting everybody tithing on their herb gardens but their hearts were so far from God that's why Jesus said to them you make the outside of the cup so pretty but inside full of dead men's bones sounds good looks good they looked like very religious people but not pleasing God Amen. I want to challenge us today, if I can, to put this all together. Have faith in God. Put your trust in Him. If you want to please God, that's where it starts. 
Make up your mind to be determined that you will please him, not people. Do not become entangled in the affairs of this life unnecessarily. That could be in a lot of things. It could be pursuit of career. It could be pursuit of finance that causes us to compromise commitment. There's a lot of different things that could be. It could be becoming involved in ungodly relationships. There's so many ways that we can become unnecessarily entangled. Let him place you in his body as pleases him, not you. You never notice that there's nowhere in the scripture, there's no... uh, Additions at the back where you apply for certain jobs. There's no forms where you can say, I would like to be. You don't get that option in the kingdom of God. The option you get in the kingdom of God is, Lord, if you can use anything, you can use me. And then he directs. Let him place you in his body as he sees fit. Be the best version of wherever he places you. Amen. If you're picking people up for church, if that's what the Lord's got you doing right now, Get a five-star Uber rating. Have a clean car, have bottled water and mints in that thing. Get five stars from everybody you bring to church. Be the best version of whatever it is that God's got us doing. Amen. Let him give us the will and the to-do for his pleasure. And as we finished off with, walk in the Spirit. Saturate your life with prayer with the word of God, so that everything we do for him is offered as a living sacrifice in worship and praise to him. Stand with me if you would this morning. Let's just lift our hands and thank the Lord for his goodness.